Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Are corporations people? The U.S. Supreme Court says they are, at least for some purposes. Today, in part two of our series on corporations, we're going to look at the impact of the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizens United ruling, which allowed corporations and unions to spend freely in political campaigns. We'll also examine the subsequent move to amend effort, which seeks to overturn that ruling. It's now been more than four years since that landmark case was decided. What do you think? Have the effects been good or bad for the political process? Have there been unintended consequences? And what should be done going forward? Our guests this hour include Thomas Hucken, University of Utah professor of English, who's with Utah Move to Amend. He joins us on the telephone. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, great first name, by the way. I'm, I'm a Tom, too. By the way, do you, uh, do you go by Thomas or Tom? Uh, Tom is fine, thanks. Okay. okay. And John Ferguson, who teaches business law and ethics in the USU Huntsman School of Business, is in studio with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom and Tom. Yes. Nice meeting you, John. <laughs> uh, we should mention that you uh, spent some nine years at the First Amendment Center. I did. In, mm-hmm. uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. In Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You have an interesting background. You have a, a background in religion, both uh, practicing uh, as a preacher and, and also as an academic and, and also as a, as a lawyer. I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to bring all that to bear today. We're going to talk about uh, corporate personhood in the arena of uh, free speech and in the arena of, uh, of democracy, of uh, politics. Let's open with a famous clip. I can't remember which campaign this was. This is Mitt Romney, um, and he, I believe he's in Iowa. And you'll you'll hear him talking about his usual campaign spiel. Then someone shouts out. Pushes back against him, and we get a whole uh, we get a whole discussion about corporations as people. The coming decades going to be able to balance our budget and not spend more than we take in. We have to make sure that the promises we make in Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare are promises we can keep. And there are various ways of doing that. One is we could raise taxes on people. That's not the way. That, corporations. Cor- corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on. Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So, where do you think it goes? Whose pockets? Whose pockets? People's pockets. Okay, human beings, my friend. So number one, so number one, you can raise taxes. You can raise taxes. That's not the approach that I. So this is Mitt Romney. Uh, I think most of us remember that corporations are people, my friend. And that's what the Supreme Court has, has ruled increasingly in favor of this idea, which some call an artificial construct. The corporations of people are people. And Citizens United essentially said that uh, for p- purposes of political spending and free speech, corporations uh, have the rights of, of people. So, uh, so, so Tom Huckin, what, uh, what, what's wrong with that? I guess, first of all, I think you would agree with the hecklers there, <laughs> that corporations should not be considered people. Yes, that's that's right. Um, <clears throat> corporations uh, are not mentioned in the Constitution at all. The Constitution begins with "We the people." Uh, certainly, does not refer to corporations. Um, corporations themselves are entirely uh, artificial entities, uh, man-made legal mechanisms, uh, desired or, or required to conduct business and so on. But um, they are persons only in a very, in that narrow legal sense, uh, and were never intended by the founders, uh, in our view, to be protected by uh, the Bill of Rights, which uh, really should be reserved, and from the beginning were intended to be reserved for uh, human beings, natural human beings. Mm. So 
that's our general position on corporations, that they are valuable uh, uh, business enterprises and an important part of our e- economic system, but they should not be entitled to the Bill of Rights protections that are reserved, have been reserved for natural persons from the beginning. So, John Ferguson, uh, d- did the Supreme Court go too far here? Is it, there's been a whole debate over the years in legal circles about corporations as people. They have, and I, it's unfortunate that Romney made the, the statement that he did. The, um, the reality is there is a corporate personhood that is a complete legal fiction. It's, it was made up by people, and it was designed to uh, facilitate business, to make the economy work better. Um, and unfortunately, people have kind of taken that, uh, that term of art and have turned it into kind of more of the way people normally use the idea of personhood. And that, that was really inarticulate of him. And it's, it's inarticulate oftentimes when we try and expand that idea uh, beyond what it was originally intended to be mm. and even what, what it's intended to be now. Uh, I do think the court probably um, was not as particular as they should have been in that case. I think it should have been a much narrower ruling. And I think they should have been much more uh, more defined in how they, they worked with some of the wording. And I think that's led to a lot of unintended consequences. Hmm. Uh, Tom, how can you, uh, you made reference back, there are some beneficial aspects to this, right? Uh, the, the, and we talked about in the previous program a couple of weeks ago, on, uh, as we kicked off this series, History of Corporations, that once this idea was set up, the corporation as an entity in and of itself, then the owners could have limited liability, um, and and you 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 share a joint responsibility, and you, and you pool the money. So there are some there are some positive aspects here that really help the economy. Uh, definitely, and that goes back centuries um, to joint stock companies and so on. There, are, yes, investors do need to be protected to a certain extent from their uh, investments and the risks that they're taking and so on in order to encourage uh, enterprise. Um, So that's all uh, well and good. Um, Also, uh, corporations need to be endowed with some kind of concept of legal personhood so that they can act, uh, they can sue, and they can be sued, they can be, you know, held responsible and, you know, according to the judicial legal systems. Um, but they, th- those, those rights and privileges should be really restricted and not uh, extended to the uh, Bill of Rights. What about Governor Romney's uh, point during that uh, brief clip that uh, who do you think makes up corporations, he said? It's people. Who do you, where, yes. do you, where do you think the money goes? Yep. It's people. What do, what do you say to that? Well, yes, people certainly constitute corporations, but, um, and those people, uh, when they belong to corporations, they don't sacrifice, they don't give up. Uh, their, you know, their first uh, Ten Amendment uh, rights or the Fourteenth Amendment, any of the Bill of Rights protections as individuals, they don't give up any of those things. Um, the the issue is whether the, uh, you know, these protections should be extended to uh, artificial entities like corporations or unions or other associations and groups of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the that's where. Uh, I feel and move to amend feels that the Supreme Court overstepped its uh, <clears throat> its logic. Really, I mean, it's 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 reasoning. What uh, what does the amendment say? What are you what are you trying to get uh, passed? What what would it do? Well, our amendment is called "We the People" amendment. Um, there are two parts to it, two sections. One is that um, the rights protected by the Constitution of the United States are the rights of natural persons only. 
uh, artificial entities established by the laws of any state, the United States or any foreign state, shall have no rights under this Constitution and are subject to regulation by the people through federal, state, or local law. The privileges of artificial entities shall be determined by the people through federal, state, and local law and shall not be construed to be inherent or inalienable. That's the first part of it. And uh, I think that's, that's um, really important because corporations themselves, going back to the beginning, uh, have been chartered uh, by, uh, typically by state or local uh, um, jurisdictions uh, in order to, well, originally in order to accomplish some purpose like uh, building a canal or a bridge or something like that. Um, and had you know finite you know limited time periods time spans and um, you know the charter had to be renewed after three years or so and so there were there were quite strong restrictions on you know how corporations could uh, could function um, that basic element of corporate uh, law has been kind of lost sight of but. Um, in any case, that's the history of it. So that would be section number one, that artificial entities are not persons and therefore can be regulated. And the other section of our proposed amendment has to do with this idea that money is speech, which is also a pretty cockeyed idea in our view. Uh, we feel that money is not speech and therefore can be regulated. It does not fall under the First Amendment protection of uh, freedom of speech. Hmm. Uh, I want to uh, follow uh, follow that up, and uh, I think we'll open with that in our next segment, which is coming up in about four minutes. Uh, this idea that money is not speech—that's that's the uh, point uh, you just heard from from Tom Huckin, and it's put forward by Move to Amend. Um, and, I, and I know you'll have something to say on this, John Ferguson. But first, uh, this idea of taking care of this correcting this misaction, if you see it that way, by the Supreme Court, Citizens United, through constitutional amendment. Uh, do, is, is that a good idea? I do. I have, some, I have some serious concerns when it comes to amending the Constitution, especially amendments that will have effects and modify the First Amendment in some cases. Um, because what we're really dealing with here, and the, the reason this is such a complicated issue, is we're kind of conflating several legal issues into one big pot. And that, that doesn't always make for good policy. Uh, the reality is that corporate personhood, as a, as a concept, is never even mentioned in um, in Citizens United or, or any of the other cases that people often refer to. Uh, the court moved away from this idea of specifically defining corporate personhood back in the 60s. And most of the cases we're seeing now aren't really dealing with the idea of expanding that personhood um, for its own reason or for its own purposes, but really this idea of association rights, and that is a, a core First Amendment value, and it's association for expressive purposes. Now, I think the court probably um, has misconstrued that, and I, I don't necessarily agree with what the court has done with some of those association rights, uh, especially in the concept of a corporation, because corporations are there for a specific purpose, and usually those purposes are to make money. Uh, they're not put together for associative purposes, and that's really what the the freedom to associate is really about. So you can express yourself, and you can have that free speech aspect of coming together as a group. Um, and so I think we need to be careful because by using this idea of corporate personhood, we're kind of merging that into these ideas of association rights, and those are two very separate legal constructs. And 
<clears throat> one of them, I think, is uh, certainly easier to deal with, this idea of corporate personhood. But when we start merging it in with this idea of association rights, we do run the risk of interfering with those core fundamental constitutional ideas, such as free speech and the ability to um, have our voices heard, either through expressive action, protesting, marching, <clears throat> excuse me, or through, um, you know, regular speech or the media or other other methods. Tom Harker, what do you think about that? Uh, uh, John Ferguson is is saying that uh, perhaps we, we should take a long look at this because of potential unintended consequences. We're, we're messing with the First Amendment here, potentially. Yes, definitely. Um, I do agree with that. I think the um, those advocating for uh, this idea of corporate personhood, um, that is, um, those supporting the Citizens United ruling, um, are relying on that, I think, that notion of the First Amendment freedom of assembly and uh, <clears throat> right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, um, you know, and conflating that with freedom of speech, etc. So you get this kind of blurring of of different uh, parts of the First Amendment and being used um, in the service of empowering corporations to have um, all sorts of uh, privileges that, and rights that um, we feel were never intended by the Founding Fathers. Um, so, yes, I, I do agree with what, uh, what John just said. Also, before we take a break, I want to get this quote in. Uh, this is specifically on corporate personhood. Uh, this is uh, Riders on the Range series. This was in the desert or the Denver Post, and it's on the uh, Move to Amend dot org slash Utah uh, site. So a Utah version of Move to Amend. He says something very interesting here. Uh, he says corporations are not intrinsically good or bad. Of course, they make and sell many useful products. But they're fundamentally selfish, greedy automatons, doing whatever they can to maximize profits. Various laws even require them to act like that on behalf of their shareholders. They're more like robots than people, and the law should uh, treat them as such. Uh, Tom Huck, and I, I assume you agree with that. Not entirely. Um, uh-huh. I, I think uh, corporations are certainly self-serving. Uh, their main, their overriding goal is to uh, maximize uh, return on investment. They are economic entities, so they try to make as much money as they can for their shareholders. Um, but I don't think they do it in a robot-like fashion at all. Mm-hmm. They are certainly not automatons. Um, they have a lot of flexibility, and um, you know they they can use various stratagems to uh, serve their end goal. So I think that's uh, uh, that's quite an exaggeration, uh, and I'm not sure of the larger context in which that statement uh, without knowing the larger context it mm-hmm. kind of puzzles me a little bit as to what the writer's getting at there yeah um so you're at least personally you're not attacking corporations themselves you're just attacking this uh, uh i guess the enshrinement in law of this this artificial construct of, of corporations as people yes and uh i think where the rubber is meeting the road uh, and really, kind of the I think we need to point to the larger context at this point because the the issue has come up, especially uh, in the, in the wake of Citizens United. The issue has come up about corporations spending enormous amounts of money uh, uh, backing political candidates or political parties. That's the problem. That the um, our democracy was founded on the idea of. 
uh, of individuals, um, you know, voting and selecting, you know, representatives and the idea, this is kind of a pure idea of democracy and so on, um, that many of us still cling to, that our votes uh, count and that uh, at the end of the day, uh, what we have in, in Washington and in Salt Lake City and so on are the people's representatives who are looking out for our best interests, et cetera, et cetera. We like to believe in that fiction, uh, but clearly in, in modern times, uh, corporations have gained so much power and they have so much financial wealth that they've been able to influence the political process uh, in a way that severely distorts it away from citizens' interests and in favor of uh, big money interests. Um, I think most people are at least uh, vaguely, if not very uh, consciously, aware of this overriding influence of corporate money on our elections. Um, in any case, the Citizens United decision and, and uh, some others like it or preceding it um, have um, pointed to this problem of big money distorting our uh, democratic, you know, supposedly democratic elections. That's the that's the real issue. That's the larger context that I, I think we don't want to lose sight of. Yes, and we'll we'll certainly uh, jump into that uh, before we take a break. I want to give John Ferguson a chance to respond. To either uh, Ray Ring's uh, quote there from the Denver Post, or or uh, anything that uh, Tom Hawkins just said. Well, just going back to that idea of representation, I do think there is an issue here and something that um, oftentimes the court didn't seem to take very seriously, I don't think, was the issue of the shareholders. Um, anytime you allow the corporation to use treasury funds and use money directly from the corporation to do things that aren't really in the um, purview of that corporation, I mean, the corporation is designed to make money, to engage in that business. When they start politicking, they're using the shareholders' resources. And I think there's a fiduciary responsibility to not go beyond what they're supposed to be doing. And I think the court kind of missed the missed the, uh, the point there and really didn't protect the shareholders. Uh, and that was one of the reasons for not allowing that kind of thing, that corporations shouldn't be allowed to uh, go out and use their immense wealth. I'd, on the other hand, I don't know if corporations are the only ones that we should be, from a policy standpoint, most worried about. Uh, most corporations aren't going to be involved in politics because it's not good for their business. And their goal really is to make money and to engage in business. Uh, and for most of them, it doesn't make any financial sense, doesn't make any strategy sense to engage in those sort of uh, political issues. Um, if we really want to look at things, I mean, there are lots of groups. Um, I know there are some casino owners, the Koch brothers, others, who individuals who've used immense amounts of wealth um, and engaged in the, the political process. And I think that's probably a a bigger trend and a, a bigger problem um, at this point. Well, we'll take that up. A very interesting point. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, more on corporate personhood, on free speech, money in uh, as free speech. Uh, and we're talking on the, this part of the program or the entire program uh, with John Ferguson, who uh, teaches business law and ethics in the USU Huntsman School of Business, and Thomas Hucken who is the University of Utah professor of English and is with Utah Move to Amend. We're opening the phone lines at this point as well, and would love to get your point of view. Do you agree with Citizens United? Uh, what about uh, corporate influence? Outsized, as some people uh, see it, in uh, in the uh, political process. What about the point uh, Professor Ferguson just uh, made about uh, individuals and their outsized influence? And 
uh, an axiom that I've heard often. We'll bring this up after the uh, the break. Uh, that the money will flow to to power. Money will flow to candidates. Nothing can do stop that. Talk about that following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3, accepting holiday orders for chocolate yule logs, cranberry tea cakes, and Stalin holiday fruit bread. And the USU Alumni Association, offering the 2015 USU Alumni Scholarship Calendar, featuring photos of USU campus lit at night. Details at usu.edu slash alumni. Hello, I'm Corva Coleman. Every December, the Glee Clubs of Morehouse and Spelman Colleges get together to celebrate the season in concert. It's one of the hottest tickets in town, but this year we've saved a place for you right here on the radio. Join us for Christmas with the Morehouse and Spelman Glee Clubs, a great tradition with new additions from NPR. Monday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's part two of our uh, proposed three-part series on uh, the corporation. And the question, the center of our discussion, at least so far, we'll make a bit of a transition away from this in the next segment. But are corporations people? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court says they are, at least for some purposes. And uh, we're looking at the impact of U.S. Supreme Court Citizens United ruling, which allowed corporations and unions to spend freely in political campaigns. Uh, We're examining subsequent move to amend effort, which seeks to overturn that ruling. It's now been four years since that landmark case was decided. We've got the phone lines open now for you. What do you think? Have the effects been good or bad for the political process? Are there any changes that you feel should be made? Is move to amend one of those changes that you agree with uh, to ensure that all have a voice in the democratic process? Our guests include Thomas Hucken, University of Utah professor of English. He's with Utah Move to Amend. John Ferguson is with us in studio. He teaches business law and ethics at USU Huntsman School of Business. The number to call us is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Utah Public Radio, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Let's open this segment with um, an email um, who says, uh, the question is, how is a corporation different from an organization such as Move to Amend? So I'll direct this to Tom Hucken. They're an organization with a goal. The only difference is that their goal is to gain profit. Corporations are uh, uh, gain influence. Where Move to Amends is to limit their speech, that, that is, gain influence. So Move to Amend is an organization of people who are seeking a political end. Corporations, an organization of people seeking, in some time, cases, a political end. So what, what do you say well, to that, uh, Professor Rocky? Well, yes, but uh, a corporation's primary purpose uh, is to make a lot of money. Um, it's, a, it's, it's very self-interested in that regard, and its, its interests are pretty much confined to those of its shareholders. And... Um, you know, it's, it's directors and company officers and so on, and maybe to a lesser extent, hopefully, to employees. Um, but it's not out there to serve necessarily the greater good. It, it might do so accidentally or incidentally, but that's not its, its main purpose. Um, what we're trying to do as a citizen's organization is to um, 
improve this society um, in whatever way we, in, in, in the particular way that we're aiming to do uh, by, um, by what we, we call restoring our democracy. We think we've kind of lost our democracy uh, under this avalanche of big money spending on elections. And so we're trying to help restore democracy to this country. That's a broad societal uh, good. And so I think there's an enormous distinction, enormous difference between a, a profit-oriented uh, business corporation and a citizens' movement to restore democracy in this country. Professor Ferguson, what do you think? Um, no, I agree. I think they're both organizations and both are protected. They're both associations of people that are coming together for a purpose. Um, and honestly, I think they're both self-interested. I think all organizations in some sense or another, uh, everyone thinks what they're doing is, is good or noble. Or, I mean, many corporations, even for-profit corporations, still have uh, corporate social responsibility and and other things that, that they think are helping society. So I don't know if we can really judge based on um, motives other than we do know that, that for-profit corporations, their, their primary goal is to, to make profit for their stakeholders um, and their shareholders. And I think that's, that's important to remember. I think the bigger issue we need to look at is kind of the political issue and how are we weighing the, the dangers and the benefits. And I think the biggest danger most people point to when we talk about corporations being involved in politics and particularly funding politics um, is the, the power they have and that they could overwhelm the system and it keeps your average citizen from playing a part in the political system. Hmm. And so I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, we all have certain rights, and, but there are some things maybe we need to evaluate politically to determine are there limitations we should put in some areas. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Hucken, uh, I want to get into this, uh, this axiom. I'm sure you've heard it. It's, uh, some would consider it cynical. Others would consider it uh, a truism. And that is money will find power. Money will find potential power. Uh, no matter what law you put in place, money is going to find a way to flow to the candidates. What, what do you say to that? Uh, yes, it, uh, <clears throat> I think that's generally true. And in fact, um, there's a book um, by another Professor Ferguson, uh, uh, Thomas Ferguson. I don't know, John, if you're related to him at all, but... I don't think so. Uh, no? Well, in any case, it's a book that was published in 1996 called Golden Rule. Uh, it's a wonderful book, but uh, unfortunately written in a, in a very kind of arcane fashion and long and scholarly and difficult, so it hasn't reached the uh, general you know, public. However, it, he puts forth um, the a theory, what he calls the investment theory of political parties, and provides massive um, research and empirical support to show that political parties respond to big money more than they do to, let's say, public voter sentiment or polls or, or whatever. And the real danger lies in both parties um, setting the agenda for discussion according to what big money interests more or less dictate. And that's the, that's the real danger, that, it's, that you end up with voters, ordinary voters in the general public, being faced with choices that are not really responsive to the general public, but more responsive to the needs and interests of large corporations with lots of money to spend on 
political parties and candidates. Uh, and he shows how that uh, theory, the investment theory, makes uh, actually works out better, makes better predictions and so on, than the idea of uh, political parties uh, seeking out the interests of the median voter, uh, which is kind of the standard conception of American politics, that there's a median voter out there, and if you can just manage to get, you know, one more voter on your side than on the other side, then you'll win. But really, uh, Ferguson shows that the, the both parties cater to the interests of big money, especially money from corporations, which outweigh unions, for example, by a large, large margin, um, rather than the interests of ordinary citizens. Uh, t- tell us the, uh, the, the title and author again. The author is Thomas Ferguson. The title is Golden Rule. Okay. The subtitle is The Investment Theory of Party Competition and the Logic of Money-Driven Political Systems, mm-hmm. University of Chicago Press, okay. published in 1995. Uh, we do have a caller, so I'll ask uh, Professor Ferguson here at, uh, if he wants to have any comment to finish this point, and then we'll go to our caller. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd just say I don't think that's necessarily limited to corporations, though. Um, I mean, if we look at the influence of the NRA or the AARP or any of these other groups, um, they're... Uh, interest groups always have disproportionate um, power and um, influence in politics. And I think it's a, a dangerous situation to say, well, corporations are the only ones doing that. Now, how we balance that out without restricting the individual's right to come together with other like-minded people and influence political process, I think that's where the danger and some of the unintended consequences come in. Okay. Uh, we have Carl in St. George. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Glad you called you guys wouldn't be so uptight if you were down here today. It's going to be 68 degrees. Wow, 68. <laughs> <laughs> I have two comments. Number one, uh, concerning taxes. We don't talk about taxes, but you know a truism that just makes the hair on the back of uh, financial people stand up is that corporations do not pay taxes. Would you agree or disagree with that? Uh, uh, Professor Hawkins, do, do you agree with that? Uh, sure. Um, corporations, yeah, they pay taxes. I mean, uh, I'm not an expert in this area. I'm sure Professor Ferguson can answer this better. But, I mean, yes, they, 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 there is a corporate tax rate. Um, there are often cases where corporations don't pay the full tax rate because they have various deductions and so on. And there is, that's, a, that's a whole other issue, but um, corporations do pay Taxes. Um, what I was getting at is corporations are tax collectors. They're not taxpayers. In accounting, a tax is a, an expense, and expenses are passed on to people. And if you look at any bill that you get, whether it's from Rocky Mountain Power or from any corporation, the tax is tacked on. People pay taxes. And I think it's a real misnomer for people to say that corporations pay taxes. Corporations are tax collectors, not taxpayers. 
Would you agree with that or disagree? So, uh, Professor Ferguson, what do you think? No, corporations do pay taxes on the profits they make. I mean, the corporate tax rate in America is actually rather high for most industrialized nations. We're up in the the mid-30s. Now, the real tax rate, the tax rate that corporations actually pay is about 12%. Um, based on most recent things. Uh, Now, there are some taxes that they pass on to consumers. I mean, consumers do pay some of the taxes um, directly, but the corporations are required to pay. um, Actually, there's there's double taxation because they have to pay the profits they make, and then shareholders, again, pay taxes on uh, what they make off of their shares. They're passed on to the people. So the bottom line is is the people pay those taxes as expenses. Mm -hmm. So, Carl, Carl, your point on, on this is, uh, as it relates to free speech, is that that that, that, that buttresses the argument that corporations shouldn't shouldn't have free speech rights. Yeah. In other words, uh, uh, people pay taxes to the corporation, and in some cases, because of investment tax credits and depreciation and so on, the corporation actually keeps those funds before passing them on to the government. Utilities are notorious for this. And it's really a tax-free loan, courtesy of the people, because they hold these uh, taxes for, oh, you know, some period of time before they're passed on to the government. But there's another point that I wanted to make, too, and that is you're talking about corporations as a competitive entity. Why don't we talk about co-ops more, which is a cooperative entity? Anytime I've seen a cooperative uh, it seems like it does a much better job of representing its members than a than a uh, a corporation does. Why don't we talk about co-ops more? Okay, uh, thanks for that, Carl. We'll 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 talk about that. Okay. Appreciate that. Uh, so, uh, Professor Bergson, co-ops. Yeah, co-ops are great, and they can uh, be a valuable instrument to do certain things, but they do tend to be much smaller scale. You don't normally find co-ops that are large enough to do. Uh, large-scale business interests. I mean, GE couldn't function as a co-op. In order to do the things it needs to do, especially in a globalized uh, economy with multinationals having to do uh, business in many, many different countries, you you can't really function as a a co-op. It's too primitive of a a business tool. And so we do need corporations to do things, even when they're not as responsive to shareholders. They they do have certain efficiencies and certain benefits that that other um, models don't have. Let's take another break. Uh, okay. when we, when, uh, yes, go ahead, and then we'll take a break. I'll, I'll try to be fast. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one um, counterexample to that is the Mondragon Cooperative in Spain, which has an enormous size, enormous uh, number of people involved, um, and is, is very successful uh, in a larger business sense. Mm. Okay, interesting. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk more about this idea of, uh, of free association, right? And that's that's what Professor Ferguson is is telling us this is really about, uh, and that we we should see it in that light and, and be careful in terms of uh, any amendments to the Constitution. Uh, I want to get into a, a point uh, that was made earlier in the program about individuals. There are individuals that have an outsize, and many people would see it influence in politics. The example, the Koch brothers, which is, which is a famous example. I guess you could uh, uh, don't immediately recall to mind uh, an example of a 
big uh, looming liberal donor, but uh, they're, they're, you probably could supply that. Uh, Collison supply that uh, if if you can think of that. Uh, so we're not uh, trying to be overtly political on this, but this idea of corporations versus individuals. And if you if you pass this amendment, you still have individuals who have outsized uh, influence. We'll talk about that following the break. A couple years ago, a group of scientists created a marketplace for monkeys to buy stuff. And if you looked at the monkeys' data, you just assume it was from a human in a real market. It turns out that monkeys make the same exact mistakes we do. And that leads us to a puzzle, right? Why is it that we keep doing dumb things in the face of bad consequences? The Money Paradox, next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Listener support makes Utah Public Radio the one you count on for trustworthy news, statewide discussions, inspiring music, and laughter. As the year draws to a close, consider the value you get from Utah Public Radio and make your tax-deductible year-end gift right now at upr.org. Your contribution helps maintain daily operations. The more funds raised, the greater the services we can provide every day of the year. Membership makes all the difference. Make yours at upr.org. Corporations in the political arena, is that good or bad? Is it outsized influence? Uh, What should we do about it? The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that uh, in the Citizens United ruling that corporations, along with unions, uh, can spend freely in political campaigns. And we're asking you, has that been a good or bad uh, result? Um, uh, Have there been unintended consequences? What should be done going forward? What about money in politics? Do you just let it run or do you try to limit it? And uh, some would say that you, you can't. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, on the line uh, Thomas Hucken, who's with us for the hour, University of Utah professor of English, who is with Utah Move to Amend. They're seeking to overturn Citizens United with a constitutional amendment. John Ferguson, who teaches business law and ethics in the OSU Huntsman School of Business, is with us in studio. The number to call us, we have another 10 minutes or so left in the conversation, is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Uh, Carl in St. George joined us. As he's, he's, his point was corporations don't pay taxes. Our guest pushed back a bit on that idea. Uh, he also says corporations are competitive entities. We should talk more about co-ops. Um, and uh, so we've talked a bit about that. What do you think? one 800 Could I jump go in ahead. there about yes. co-ops, Tom? Yes, go ahead. Um, I, yeah, there was another point I was going to make uh, in addition to the Madrigan Cooperative in Spain, which is kind of a model of what could be done on a larger scale of co-ops. Uh, and uh, one big difference between co-ops and large corporations is that uh, co-ops are very uh, responsive to their members' uh, views and thoughts and desires, whereas large corporations are not so. Large corporations are run largely by, uh, you know, management team, by you know, board of directors, and so on, uh, by top officials. Um, and I think in their case, there's, you know, the there's just not much. Um, uh, you know, concern for views of members. There are, you know, in, with annual meetings, etc. There are surveys sent out, etc. But those are all pretty perfunctory and pro forma, and I don't think uh, there's much, 
you know, concern about membership sentiment on various issues the way there is with co-ops. Hmm. Uh, Professor Ferguson. Yeah, I I agree. I think the uh, the issue with co-ops is not. Um, I, I do think they're a far more responsive form, um, but they're not very efficient. And the reality is corporations are efficient because they're not as responsive to shareholders. Uh, and that's why we do have laws and we have fiduciary responsibilities with corporations where corporations are supposed to make money. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's their purpose. And that's why personally, there are lots of corporations my retirement's invested in. And I, I don't necessarily need to know what they're doing this week at mm-hmm. you know, the companies I invest in. Um, and because that's that wouldn't be efficient for me, it wouldn't be efficient for them. And so I think we're, we really are talking about two different models for running business and kind of both what the consumer wants as in the form of shareholders and also what the businesses need in order to run. Let me turn to this uh, key question. I'll direct this first to uh, Tom Hucken. Uh, and uh, that is, it was brought up earlier in the program, there are individuals who have an outsized influence in the political process. A lot of money flows from individuals, Koch brothers, George Soros, um, and move to amend this amendment, uh, Professor Hucken would not address those individuals. What, what do you say to that? Uh, well, move to amend uh, does address uh, wealthy individuals, and, it, and you're right, uh, more, and uh, John made the same point earlier, that more and more it's, um, it's enormously wealthy individuals who are exercising uh, undue influence in our elections. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about uh, billionaires. Uh, you've mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of the Koch brothers, George Soros, Tom Steyer would, would be another one uh, on the left. Um, there's Sheldon Adelson on the right. I mean, there are these multi-multi-billionaires who are putting a lot of money into elections. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, Move to Amend does address uh, this problem uh, with the second part of our proposed amendment, namely that money uh, is not speech and therefore can be regulated. Mm. So the problem is it's not just corporations, but it's the problem of big money in general in our elections, because uh, if one goes along with the idea that money is speech, then it it fits into the uh, First Amendment um, <clears throat> clause about freedom of speech and makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to re- you know, seriously regulate this kind of tremendous campaign spending that um, you know, one sees through not only large corporations, but through uh, very wealthy multi-billionaires. Okay, okay, I'd, I'd forgotten about the second part of your. So you're addressing not only corporations, but uh, all the big spending, uh, or any spending. Yes. Uh, yes. You're saying that money is uh, is not speech. So what do you think of that, Professor Ferguson? Money not speech. Oh, I, I actually, I disagree with that. I think money is a form of speech. I think it's a very powerful form of speech. It's a way to garner influence. It's a way to, to get changes to happen. Um, so I don't think the best way to regulate this or to modify the problems we're seeing is through redefining what speech is. Instead, I think we need to look more at what um, campaign finance and what the um, the end result is, how the money's actually getting to the politicians. Because there are lots of forms of speech that we do regulate. I mean, not all speech is, is free speech. There are many things we absolutely prohibit. Uh, child pornography, solicitation for prostitution, fraud, bribery. I mean, these are all forms of speech that we say those are illegal and we're not allowed to do those things. So I think instead of trying to redefine what speech is, maybe we should look at how, you know, if we're going to make an amendment, it should be an amendment on how campaigns are financed or how politicians are able to receive money or how political parties are able to receive and, and deal with money. So you, th- you think it's too broad? I do. I think uh, anytime we start 
making those kind of modifications for how we're defining speech, that leads to far bigger issues of uh, unintended consequences. Professor Eichen, what do you think about that? The, the pre- Professor Ferguson is saying this is too broad. There are other ways we could limit uh, campaign spending. Uh, I guess I'll have to disagree with that. Um, uh, in our view, uh, speech, uh, or rather money, enables speech. It can help speech, certainly. It can help to magnify and amplify speech, but it's not speech itself. Um, and I guess we would be originalists in that regard. We'd go back to the original Constitution and and the way speech was conceived back then uh, in terms of public speakers in a town square, in terms of pamphlets, etc. Um, the founders were especially concerned with political speech rather than something like pornography or... Uh, or um, <laughs> yelling fire in a crowded theater or something like that, which those are the, those are the most famous exceptions uh, that one finds out there in terms of regulating speech. Uh, the founders were especially concerned with political speech, and that's what we're talking about here. Um, political speech, money, just an avalanche of money in our current elections uh, between 2008 and 2012, there was a tripling of outside uh, spending in federal elections, and this is due largely to Citizens United. Um, so um, if money is granted the status of speech, and if it falls under that uh, First Amendment rubric of freedom of speech, then it's very difficult, especially political speech, then it's very difficult to regulate it. So. And we would we would argue strenuously against that position, Professor. If I can, I'm trying to um, trying to parse this out. So in today's world, I think we could all agree, that for the most part, speech equals television, right? Especially in large states. So mm-hmm. it, in my mind, that equals money, large sums of money. How, how would that be funneled under under on a plan under a citizens under a move to amend being passed? Would it, would it go back to public financing? What would what would happen? Well, the idea is that. Uh, I mean, money could still be spent on um, on television ads and so on, but it would be regulated. That's the the problem is that there's such an enormous amount of speech uh, out there in terms of these um, uh, you know TV and radio ads and so on that it drowns out. Um, I mean, that money is being used to support the two main parties uh, at the expense of all other parties, and it drowns out uh, alternative voices. Um, it's, it's, um, in fact, uh, if you look at the Citizens United um, decision, um, you have a very clear distinction between the two um, opposing positions, I would say. And uh, Justice Scalia took the view that the more, uh, the more speech, the better, um, and therefore was part of the majority saying that, you know, you can never have too much money being spent on speech in an election, but he was um, ignoring, in our view, he was ignoring the corrupting potential of, of such big money and the fact that it drowns out uh, voices of ordinary citizens, which is a point that Justice Stevens made in his dissent. Um, I would urge people to look at that Citizens United decision, see what um, Justice Scalia had to say on the one hand and what Justice Stevens had to say on the other about this. 
All right. Good, good advice. And we'll give Professor Ferguson the last word. We just have about a minute and a half. Um, oh, and I agree. I think um, the overwhelming amount of money in the political process is a corrupting influence. And that's why I think it's one of those things that as we weigh out the, the pros and cons and the benefits of certain things that we can say, this is too damaging, just like all the other things we regulate and different types of speech we regulate. I think we can say that in order to protect the political system as it exists, we do need to regulate the way we fund uh, campaigns and the way money gets to campaigns. Um, so I think we can do that without having to uh, modify the First Amendment and make some of these definitional changes that I think really do lead to the unintended consequences we need to be careful of. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. Much more that can be said. You can still join us on our website, upr.org, where this conversation will uh, be up within the hour. And you can join us at uh, upraxis at gmail.com and on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, so we have had uh, as our guest Thomas Hocken, University of Utah professor of English. He's with Utah Move to Men. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And John Ferguson, who teaches business law and ethics in the USU Huntsman School of Business. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Coming up uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about a novel. It's set in uh, Zion National Park. It's a national park mystery. It's called Canyon Sacrifice. Uh, Scott Graham is the novelist. That's tomorrow's program. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. I set out this week to investigate why so many of the gifts in the 12 days of Christmas are birds. You know the song. There are swans a-swimming, geese a-laying, calling birds, French hens, turtle doves, and that partridge in the pear tree. Well, I never did find the answer, but what I did find was some interesting information about a native bird often incorrectly referred to as a partridge, a bird that is supremely well adapted to life in winter. Ruffed grouse resemble partridges in that they are ground-dwelling game birds of similar size and stature. Their name comes from a collar of long feathers surrounding the necks of males who fluff them out when seeking mates in spring. The birds come in two color phases, differentiated mainly by their tail feathers, which can be either gray or chestnut brown. While not well understood, a grouse's color phase seems to be linked to climate. Grouse with gray tails are more prevalent in areas defined by cold winters, while brown grouse are more common in warmer climates. Now that snow is blanketing the landscape across much of their territory, the ruffed grouse is in its element. Harsh winters that adversely affect populations of other ground-dwelling game birds, such as quail, pheasant, and turkeys, don't seem to phase ruffed grouse. Their ability to survive is dictated by a number of special adaptations. The first is on their feet, where each winter, nubby feathers called pectinations grow on the sides of the bird's toes. Looking like strange combs, the bristles act as snowshoes, allowing the grouse to walk on top of even the softest snow. More special feathers grow on grouse legs, like personal leg warmers, and also near the bird's beak, covering its nostrils. Scientists believe the feathered mustache enables grouse to breathe in warmer air than they otherwise would, thus keeping their internal temperature more stable. Changes in weather bring about some changes in behavior as well. Warmer months find the birds resting in evergreens or thick brush, but in winter, when a foot or more snow covers the ground, grouse roost in the snow. The birds create small burrows which hide them from predators, offer protection from frigid winter winds, and keep them surprisingly snug and warm. Many a backcountry skier or snowshoer has been startled by a hidden grouse bursting noisily from its snowy lair. 
The bird's diet also changes seasonally, from a summer sampling of green foliage, seeds, berries, and insects, to the protein-rich, dormant flower buds of trees such as aspen and birch. Grouse also won't hesitate to eat the sweet flower buds of domestic trees like apples, and were at one time considered a pest in New England orchards. And so, it's actually not out of the question that within roughed grouse territory, you might wake up one Christmas morning to find a partridge in your pear tree. Speaking of birds and the holiday season, it's nearly time for the Audubon Society's annual Christmas bird count. Over the next few weeks, tens of thousands of volunteers around the country will join in this tradition, collecting data on the types and numbers of birds living in the area. This data allows scientists to monitor and track populations over time and space. Participants can be seasoned birders, first-timers, or anything in between. To find a count near you, visit birds.audubon.org and click on Christmas Bird Count. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Every week, there's new science, new technologies, and new discoveries that affect our health, our world, and our environment. And every week, Living on Earth is there to report, analyze, and comment to make sure you know what's happening and how it may affect you. So don't miss out. Tune in right here to hear what we have to offer. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's this week and every week on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. Up next, we have the TED Radio Hour, and it's 10 o'clock.